0: You know, good morning. I don't think I've said that yet. Good morning. Um, I have a good friend that wrote a book. He's, he's a, I served with him on the IMB board, International Mission Board, if you don't know what the IMB is. It's our missions organization, and his name's Andy Davis, and he wrote a book about heaven, and he talks about in heaven, we're going to be able to learn, and it's a really brilliant book. It's called The Glory Now Revealed. It's an incredible book by Andy Davis. You ought, to, you ought to get it. It's about heaven. The glory now revealed is the name of this book. But he talks about in heaven, we're going we're gonna to learn. That, that we're, gonna, we're not going to be omniscient, all-knowing like God. We're going we're gonna to learn in heaven. And we're going to be able to trace the, the gospel thread all through history for everybody. It's going to take eternity to do this. And we're going to be able to, I mean, think about how cool it would be to, to trace the gospel thread from your life all the way back to the disciples because the way the gospel is spread it's one at a time one conversation at a time one person at a time my mom led me to christ um and uh i'm grateful for a mother that had a passion for the gospel in fact on saturday morning robin and i did a marriage conference this weekend at a church in oklahoma city and i stayed with my mom at my mom's house, and, and um, we prayed together Saturday morning, and my mom, with tears in her eyes and brokenness in her voice, prays for her neighbor and her salvation. And Robin and I left, and I'm like, how cool is that? My 89-year-old mother is broken to the point of tears over the lostness of her neighbor. But I'm grateful I saw a mom who understood, share the gospel one at a time. And that's how you see the gospel has spread. Now in John 2, that's where we are today. If you have your Bibles turn to John chapter 2, and and we're gonna see this played out. Jesus goes to a party, a wedding, and it's such a an incredible moment. And he and, and what you see in John 2, and we're we're looking at in the in the in the gospel of John, how the gospel is beginning to spread. How how people are coming close to Jesus, face to face with Jesus. And and in John chapter two, it's the first miracle. Now this week I was uh, popped out of my office and and, uh, Brennan Fulton was standing there and I said, okay, Brennan, hey, give me your best definition of a miracle. How would you describe a miracle? And he goes, well, and this bald bearded theologian who runs the mission center for us, he busted out a definition. I said, that's pretty good. I'm going to quote you on Sunday. So here is the theologian Brennan Fulton, our very own. Here's what he said about a miracle. He said, a miracle is an occurrence that can't be explained by normal descriptor, descriptors revealing the glory of God. Pretty good. Uh, so when you see Brennan, say, hey, good definition of a miracle. That's, that's, uh, you know, I've always understood a miracle— to be a work accomplished by divine power for divine purposes beyond the reach of humanity that proves God can be trusted. But I want you to know, sometimes God works in miraculous ways. Um, you know, when I, um, it's interesting, as you look at John 2, Jesus is about 30 years old, and, and he'd impress people all along. But, but this is the first miracle, the first manifestation of, his mir- of a miracle. Now, there was a guy that, in theology that I had to study in school. His name was Rudolf Boltmann, and he was a, uh, a German liberal theologian that was famous for demythologizing the Bible, And what he tried to do is, is, hey, the Bible's fine, but let's take out all the miracles. Well, this guy went to school a long time. He was really smart. A lot of people, well, some people thought he was smart. Um, um, But he was wrong. The Bible talks about miracles. You got to let the Bible stand. It's a reminder to me as I had to read Rudolf Boltmann, who was a German liberal theologian. Just because somebody has degrees after their name or they have gone to school a long time doesn't mean they're right. We've got to learn to let the Bible stand. And this is the first miracle, a moment when God moves outside of human understanding, outside of nature. Now, you know what? After the blizzard apocalypse today, uh, it's probably gonna get springish, right? We've already had a little taste of that. And, And we're gonna see our grass turn green. Leaves are gonna pop out on our trees. And we could go, oh, that's a miracle. But we kind of understand that a little bit. But there are times, and we've got to allow... I mean God's God, He's not bound by nature, and there are times he works outside of those natural processes, He does the miraculous. Now, in this miracle, it's interesting as it's as Jesus unfolds it, um, he tells us what he's doing and and there's a couple of things that we see in in Right here in the text, it just reveals this. And and let's stand together and look at John 2, 1 through 11. And as we do, let's notice what, what the text really says. It says that this miracle does two things. It manifests the glory of God, and it helps the disciples believe. And one of the things I pray for us as we read the text today, that we come face to face with the glory of God right in front of us, and then that we believe in him. Let's look at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, if you're taking notes, um, there's just an obvious lesson that we've been learning as a church, and I want us to just highlight this lesson. Um, and many of you didn't get to come, we had to our circles class. We have had a class on Wednesday nights uh, that we just finished and we'll repeat it because it was really a good class about how to be a witness, how to share the gospel in your circles. And, And one of the things I think you see, obviously, from the text, that Jesus paid attention to people in his circles. Look at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so Jesus went to a wedding. How cool is that? It's a wedding. And and I think you can you notice something about Jesus. I mean, we've looked at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of a hermit. He was the one that was kind of odd. and And he would... Was outside the city. He dressed funny and and he ate weird stuff. But uh, but Jesus was different. He he wasn't a recluse. He went to the wedding. I think that's important. Uh, he this is a moment that you see Jesus paying attention to his circles. You it's a wedding at Cana. It's it, just from the text. It's it's people that Jesus knew. It was likely a family that he loved. His mom was on the inside of this this group and I think it's significant it's a wedding it's it's a it's it's life it's the normal life of of a society of a family of a community and Jesus went to a wedding sometimes we have this vision of Jesus that he just walks around with his never moving his arms and just like bless you my or something like that Jesus laughed and he he was celebrating right here. And, and, and it just reminds me that, that we are placed in life around people, in life. This is why I love uh, being a part of a church, that we're a part of life, baby showers, wedding showers, and graduations, and all of life. Jesus was in the middle of life. I want you to realize God's placed you in a, cir- in a work circle, He strategically placed you around people that you work with, that you should be present, you should know, you should interact with, and pray for, and serve, communicate the gospel to people you work with. God has strategically placed you in a play circle. We all have hobbies and things we like to do. Friday, I went and Played tennis with a guy, and you know, I, I got to pray with him about his mom. His mom's ill, and we got to, you know, it's a play circle that God has put me around people. God has strategically placed you in a shopping circle. You're going to meet people in the restaurants, you're going to see the same people at coffee shops, and, and we're to notice people. And, and out of that comes relationships and connections and ministry. God's placed you in a life circle. People that you're going to go to their weddings and you're going to buy them gifts and you're going to take them meals. And this is life together. And I love it how Jesus was present at a circle. I love it that it's a, at a wedding. I've been to a lot of weddings. Weddings are fun to go to. My seat at a wedding is kind of unique. Most of the weddings I go to, I, I preach the wedding. So I'm, I'm literally inches away from the groom. And it is as the bride comes down the aisle, I'm, I'm usually a part of the nervousness of, oh, my goodness, is everything going to go right? Is my dress going to work? Is, is, uh, you know, do I have anything on my face? Do, is my breath bad because I'm about to kiss this guy or girl? You know? And it's such a fun seat. I've been there as, as a father, big old dads turn to putty as they give away a daughter. I've done that once. Oh my goodness. Those are fun moments, meaningful moments. And I think it's beautiful that Jesus goes to a wedding. You know what we can know about Jesus? He went to a wedding. He probably danced. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You know, they, they say that you shouldn't drink because it might lead to dancing in Baptist life, you know, right? Um, but, but you know, I dancing, if you know Baptists, if you've been around Baptists very long, you know, you've heard the term Baptists can't dance. That's absolutely true. We can't, but we should dance, right? That doesn't mean we, 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 now, not every Baptist can dance. Charlie, your daughters can dance. My wife can dance, right? Um, and... Um, but, but I love it. You know, dancing, we need to change this in Baptist life. I'm doing my best to do this. Now, I, I can't dance, but I, but I try to dance sometimes. Uh, when I was a youth minister in Oklahoma City, I, I, uh, I, I got some gifts. Robin's grandfather passed away, and he was a longtime Baptist pastor, just amazing man, and uh, shaped my life but he gave me his library, and I found this in his library, and I keep this in my office. And I hope you get to come to my office sometime because if you really pay attention in my office, it's more of an experience in my office. It's, it's a story. And uh, so come and experience the story of my office. This is part of the story. This, I found this, this pamphlet in John Shelton's library. It's called Keep Your Reputation. It's an entire pamphlet against dancing, it's why you shouldn't dance. There's a statistic in here that says 60,000 girls enter the underworld every year, three-fourths by the dance floor. That's awesome research right there. It proves right there that 73.5% of statistics are made up on the spot, right? And, uh, but but it's, it's, I have it in my office as a, if someone needs to go, no dancing, I got the argument right here. But I also have this. This is a nine-page paper written by Harold Crane. Now, you don't know Harold Crane, but Harold Crane was a principal in Oklahoma City, member of Council Road Baptist Church, and he was a senior adult in my church, loved the Baptist children's home, was a little bit crusty, a little bit gripey um, in our church, and he would always kind of be chippy, but he came into my office one day, and he goes, Chris, here, and he handed me a nine-page paper, and I go, Okay, Harold, thank you. What is this? He goes, you need to have dances in the youth group. And I was like, excuse me? What did you just say? You need to dance in the youth group. And he handed me his paper, and this is the argument. So, you know, Baptists need to get better at dancing. It's preparation for heaven. I guarantee you, Jesus danced at this wedding. And I've heard people use this passage as an argument for dancing right there. I've also had you, people use this passage as an argument for drinking. Now, the Bible does not say thou shalt not drink. And I've had a lot of people use this argument. See, I can drink as a Baptist. I don't drink because it's just not beneficial for me. But but it is true. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink. But I want to tell you what Warren Weersby said about this passage. I thought it was kind of funny and I thought I'd just let him speak into that. Warren Wiersbe is a guy you ought to know about. He, he's a theologian and wrote some commentaries. He said this, Wine was a normal drink of the people in the day in that day. And we must not use this miracle as an argument for the use of alcoholic beverages. A man given to drink once said to me, After all, Jesus turned water into wine. My reply was, if you use Jesus as your example for drinking, why don't you follow his example in everything else? That's a pretty good argument, right? Hey, so so let's allow God's word to stand. And, and you're right, it's, it doesn't say thou shalt not drink. But if you're going to really stand on that argument, let's follow his example every other place as well. So... But that's not the point. This is a Hebrew wedding and they were, they were celebrating. They, a, a typical Hebrew wedding took place in the evening and, and it was just a big deal and even poor people this was likely a poor family and they threw a big party and they were they were celebrating and and what a typical hebrew wedding was was like they would they would take the bride and groom after this big party and they would parade them through town and people all through the town would give them congratulations and they would They would celebrate them. They would go to their house. They wouldn't go on a honeymoon. They would go to their house and they would treat them like royalty all week long. And it was a beautiful, big party. And Jesus was there. And I want you to notice something from the text that, and and this is an important lesson, Jesus honored his mother here. And let's pay attention to this. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now you see that Mary is behind the scenes here. She is not just a guest. She's part of the planning and, and, and she knew this was a problem. Culturally, uh, this was a big deal. Like in a Jewish wedding, you've got to understand this, this travesty of running out of wine had huge social implications for this family. It also had a financial threat because this is just not something we understand in American culture, but in a Jewish culture, if you ran out of wine at the wedding, you could actually be sued or fined. Okay, we don't have anything equivalent in our American culture, but you have to understand this is a big deal, a socially embarrassing moment for this family that Mary loved, that Jesus loved. And it was a big deal financially for them. And so what does Mary do? She comes to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Look at verse five. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now in the ears of American culture, we look at this and go, dude, that, how is Jesus honoring his mother there? well, we got to understand Jewish culture. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's never been a moment I looked at my wife and I said, woman, I've never done that. I don't recommend that for you either. Now, one time, now you've seen, most of you seen my wife. She is lovely beautiful she smiles all the time right and uh and some people say to me like you said to me is like Robin has such a great smile people have said is is she for real is she always this smiley she really is most of the time um but there I have been a witness of the moment that I looked at Robin and I was like hey I snapped at her Do that once and this very smiley lady said, don't you snap at me. And I thought, okay, I will not do that. But, but, but you've got to understand the culture here. This is not like this. This is not disrespectful. Because you see over and over again, you'll see in the book of John, this, this statement, woman, was actually a term of respect. So don't understand the Bible. Understand context. That's a very important lesson with here. here. But he says to her, he uses this phrase, my hour has not yet come. This is a very important phrase you'll see all through the book of John because Jesus always points to a heavenly timetable. And Folks, let me tell you something. There's a heavenly timetable. And Jesus understood that his hour to the cross had not yet come. He was speaking of a heavenly timetable that's underway. But let me tell you something. We are, we're on the other side of the cross recognizing that there's a heavenly timetable for us too. And that that the Bible speaks of a, a second coming of Christ. That's part of the heavenly timetable. And here we are as we look at the world and navigate the scripture and, and work to uh, understand our Bible and then see the world. We recognize that we are on a heavenly timetable. It's why, as your pastor, I believe we must have a sense of urgency and responsibility as we, as we stand for Christ in this community. It's, it's why I believe by 2029, we've got a lot of work to do. And I pray that we embrace the timetable that is unveiled in scripture. But, but look at what Jesus says in verse four. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. And look what his mother said in verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then the servants like, all right. And I can imagine them going to Jesus going, okay, your mom said to do what you said. What do we do? Well, Well, you know what you see here? This miracle does two things. It manifests God's glory. It puts God's glory right in front of them. And then it helps the disciples believe. Do you know what I pray for today? Is that this miracle manifests in front of us the glory of God. And my prayer is that it helps all of us believe in him. You know, I, I constantly need to believe in him. Yeah, my belief in him started with salvation at first when I believed, but I continue to believe. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. Folks, this was a miracle. Can you imagine those servants? Going, all right, I'll do what he says. Fill them up with water go into that well filled it up with water that they'd done so many times let's go boys let's take it to the master doesn't make sense here we go and that master takes a drink oh my goodness this is the best wine What? I mean, I, I don't know if they gave high five then. But, but the master is like, hey, we're running out of wine. Oh, well, we got here, here. Boom, right there, boys. Thank you. Let's serve this stuff up. What? It's water into wine. It's a miracle. Now, this was not just a miracle for the moment. It's likely, we're talking maybe 180 gallons of wine. This was likely one of the greatest gifts this couple had ever been given financially. They, they likely sold this and it helped them get off to the races in their life and in their marriage. Let's notice the pots for just a second. The purif- They were pots for purification rites, six water pots and and. And, and you know the message to the Jewish listeners? They, when John writes this and, and the Jewish list, the, the disciples here are going, okay, this means something, the purification pots. It's a miracle testifying that these religious rituals that they had been practicing, they're going to go away. Jesus is doing something new. He's bringing a new covenant. The, the, the pots are something to pay attention to. Then let's think about the water and the wine. You know what, you know what Jesus is communicating here? The, 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 you see right here in front of us the transforming power of Jesus. You, you realize Jesus has transforming power. And notice verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Surely there, there's a there's a teaching here. You see right here Christ's power to change, power to transform. And, and, and it's, I think it's valuable for us to understand an Old Testament view of wine because wine all through the Old Testament is mentioned and referenced. In fact, wine is referenced all through the Bible, not as a way to, oh, we can go get a little tipsy. No, no, it's the meaning of wine. You see in Psalm one hundred four fifteen that wine gladdens the heart all through scripture, you see wine being equivalent to joy. Not a tipsy kind of joy, but a transforming kind of joy. That, you know, Jesus turned sorrow to joy. We see this all through the scriptures. Isaiah 55.1 is this really interesting passage Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. There's this connection to wine and joy. This wedding was a, the the joy had gone out of the wedding because there was no wine. Oh my goodness, we're going to, it's going to be terrible. We're going to be embarrassed. And this family that Jesus loved is going to be financially um, struggle because of this. But Jesus turned sorrow to joy. What's interesting about this miracle, it was a private miracle. It wasn't for every, I mean, everybody benefited from it, but not everybody saw it you see the transforming power of Jesus over and over again. How how Jesus takes the broken to restored. I mean, he did this for me. He did this for you. Our broken lives are now restored. You you see through the scriptures wine as a reference to sinners being saved. There's a really interesting verse in Genesis 49, verse 11. And um, I want you to see it. This is the moment that Jacob is blessing Judah. You, you remember, Jacob is the man, Israel. And this is back when he was a family. And, and Jacob blesses Judah. Remember, Judah was from, Jesus came from the line of Judah, right? Genesis 49, verse 11 says this, Binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. I think it's interesting as you look at this picture of, of, of how the blood of Jesus marks us, and it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sin. And from the very beginning... You see how out of Israel comes garments washed in wine. I can almost just go to Jesus at the Passover. Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And it's the blood of Jesus. He says, look, this is, he pours the wine. This is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me because the broken will be restored, sinner to saved. And you know what? The disciples are are starting to believe in him. They're starting to recognize that that aimless is being transformed to purposeful in their lives. This is what God does for you and me. He, He takes an aimless life and changes to purposeful. It's insufficient to blessed This is the transforming power of God. This couple had insufficient wine and and now, oh my goodness, they're blessed. So many applications here as Jesus takes, eventually sets the stage from showing you that you can go from death to life. And and that's what happens for when you're saved, when when you uh, you were dead in your sins, and when Christ. His his blood touches you. You go from death to life, which comes with some promises that the day we draw our last breath and this body dies, we go to life. You have the disciples here. I mean, it's very interesting how this is the manifested glory of God that Jesus has the power to transform your circumstances, your life, Even in the dark, even when you can't see where his hand is, he has power to transform everything. But the disciples, they're seeing all this unfold. The water to wine. You can almost see their minds going from skepticism to certainty. You know, sometimes we struggle with being skeptical about the promises of God. Even me as a pastor, I come face-to-face with difficult moments, and, and it's like I have, a, I have a really good friend I grew up with, and his mom suddenly died this week. He's a pastor at First Baptist Tahlequah, Mike Murray. His mom suddenly died. I called him this week and said, Man, just checking on you, Mike. Sorry about your mom. And we just we started talking, and, and we both said... Yeah, but we believe this, don't we? We believe this. He goes, We do, man. We believe this. The disciples right here in this miracle go from skepticism to certainty. I want you to know you can believe in Jesus. You don't have to be skeptical about the power of Christ in your life, the promises of God that have been revealed. And right here, you see the disciples going from unbelief to this transforming belief that it's these men that are walking with Jesus, this private miracle, as they look to him and they say, we're going to follow you all the way to the end. And I think about us. Goodness gracious. Here, we get to be in these days. You, we read Matthew 24 and 25 this week. We read this about, we, we, are, we are seeing the, the end days. As the Bible speaks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places. Golly, I'd call Oklahoma a various place for an earthquake recently. Goodness, good gravy, this is incredible. We're watching it come to pass. The hour has not yet come, but it's coming. And I can't think of how, of a more important moment in the history of the world to be a church that's urgent with the gospel That's focused on serving the Lord like never before. That's giving like never before. That's following the Lord like never before. And and we read Matthew 25 this week, and and I think it's really interesting, Jesus is at a wedding. And just think about, those of you that have known the Lord for a long time and or a while and have engaged the scriptures, how often there's a wedding analogy throughout the scriptures how how there's going to be a marriage supper of the lamb how how we are the bride of Christ and how beautiful it is that Jesus begins his public ministry at a wedding and how often we're supposed to recognize these Connections in, like we read in Matthew twenty-five about these ten virgins that were waiting the groom to come, the bridegroom to come, and and then he came. Lord, look, look, that's in our future, probably not so distant future. Robin and I did a marriage conf- marriage uh, conference this weekend with a church in Oklahoma City, and we were. Talking to this group of people about this legacy of faith that we're to leave our children and our grandchildren. And I don't know if we are the ones that are going to physically see the return of Christ. I don't know if we will. What if we are to be the generation that influences our children? And our grand or our grandchildren. Because we read in Matthew 24 there's a persecution that's coming. There'll be a generation that will trust the Lord so well that even when it's dark, they will stand on the promises of God. And what if it's our job to so inspire? our children and our grandchildren to know the Bible, to walk with the Lord so passionately when the rise of false teachers come that it's our grandchildren that go, that's not right because I know what the Bible says. All I know is that John wrote this. First, he's the only one that wrote about the first miracle. No other gospel wrote about the first miracle. Just this unschooled, ordinary guy that God moved him to write down this gospel. I'm not being disrespectful of John, just being honest. Acts 4.13 says he was unschooled, ordinary. This same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, wrote Revelation. And I want to remind you, of I can imagine John going, yeah, as the Revelation is coming to him, and he's writing it down as an old man. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the Gospel that I wrote, I talked about that wedding. Oh, there's another... Ceremony coming in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. God inspired John to write, This angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, this angel said to him, These are the true words of God. Folks, I love it that the first miracle was at a wedding. You know what my prayer is for you and for me? That we don't miss the manifested glory of God right in front of our eyes. Let me tell you something. We live in a a society that thinks they're advanced and thinks they can figure stuff out. But we serve a God that's not bound by nature, that has the power to work miracles. And so when people go, oh man, let's demythologize the Bible. Let's take all the miracles out. In spite of this really smart theologian, I go, that's not right. That's not right, man. I'm going to let this stand. Jesus did a miracle. Don't miss the manifested glory of God. And don't stop believing Him. You can believe in Him even when it's dark. Even when it's tough. And we're going to be a church that never stops believing in Him. That always trusts Him. That chooses to look to Him and walk with him. And I want to follow the examples of these disciples because I can imagine them talking. Did you see that? Boys, did you see that? We're going to follow him to the end. And you know what? In spite of their missteps, they did exactly that. And you know what I anticipate? In spite of our missteps, we're going to do that too. Let's follow him to the end. Now we're going to have an invitation. And Joe is going to come. And we have some people that are going to be willing to pray with you. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you're in a time of doubt. You're struggling with doubt. Maybe you need to get on your knees and, and pray. Pray. This is a good opportunity to move. I love invitations. I, I honestly, every time we encounter the Word of God, I, I cannot not respond. You know, your double negative means positive. Does that make sense? It's an English thing. You cannot not respond today. Look to Jesus. Let him move you. Would you stand where you are? Lord Jesus, I love you. And today we want to end in worship to you, singing to you, giving honor to you, responding to you. I thank you that you move us. And I pray that we would respond in this moment. Maybe it's a response by letting someone on our prayer team around the room praying for us. Maybe it's just getting on our knees at the altar seeking you. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, coming to faith in you, being saved today. I pray that you would speak. I thank you that people have already responded online today. I pray that that wouldn't even be a barrier. Father, your spirit would just move us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our prayer team's around the room. You allow God to move you right now.